Hello, and welcome <laughs> to episode 95 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host, David, and we're the NCP crew, Richo. This episode has started in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Let's don't, move on. Don't lie, you hacker. Luke. I don't know if we start speaking in the strange accent. Outrageous accent. Outrageous accent, although your French, my friend, requires a little bit. you got to get really down. I wasn't being French. It what were you French? Being, uh, being uh, Thai. Really? Yeah, it's meant to be Thai. Hello. <laughs> So, so your accent was so bad that we actually even misidentified. Trust what, me, there'll, uh, be, there'll be three people listening to this episode who will know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, it's okay because <laughs> there'll only be three people listening to this episode anyway. <laughs> Especially after that intro, <laughs> our listenership is drastically reduced. None of them tired, given you know what's currently going on in Thailand. <laughs> uh, Crystal, shut your face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, hang on, was that meant to be Scottish? That was that was that was my best Ross Mabel impersonation. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, so Shut it, it your so- face. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, we're, <laughs> we're doing accents, and that's all I can do. For this, for this episode, we have a dust jacket on the novel "The Gods Themselves" by Isaac Asimov as part of our yearly uh, tradition. That's the word I was trying to think of. That's right. Our revisitation of Asimov to commend. The reading of Foundation for our first ever episode three years ago. Exactly right. The Asimophonation. <laughs> yes. The Asimophonator. Then they will have a, a mixture of reviews, uh, five minute reviews on the various subjects. App of the Week in our uh, brand new App Happy segment. God. App Happy. <laughs> App Happy, yes. And then we'll finish up with an interview with the author of Alring Chronicles of the Vordine, uh, Mr. Peter Joyson. Uh, cool, so uh, let's let's get the ball rolling with our dust jacket, The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov. The Gods Themselves is um, a 1972 novel by Asimov, um, and that's actually part of the reason I wanted to do this book, was because we've, you know, we've done Foundation, we've done iRobot, we've looked at the at the sort of the classic, I guess, the the Asimov Golden Age period of the writer. But I wanted to look at a book written a little bit later than that. This is regarded, regarded as his best novel, right? In some respects, Not yes. Not by me. The, <laughs> in some <laughs> respects, all that matters, love. In some respects, yes. Um, he actually won the 1972 Nebula Award for this book and the 1973 Hugo Award. So it's obviously... Double whammy. Highly, yeah. I will ask uh, actually a question a little bit later on to the people as to... It's terrible. H- how do we see... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. How, how do we see... Yeah, how, is Asimov... Uh, obviously, he's an older man here than when he was writing in that classic but period. But still spunky. We, you can sort of... I think you can see a change in the man... And that's reflected in the writing and the nature of the story, but but we will get to that a little bit later. Well, as on. DOA said, <laughs> times they are a changing. But that was the that, that was um, a, a big part of why I wanted to read this book. It is it is as I said, highly praised. One's won all the awards, but I also wanted to look at you know how a writer's you know the nature of a writer's personality changes through decades of writing um, and life experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, because because Asimov is the writer that we, we revisit each year, hmm. I think this gives us a good example to look at it from that perspective as well. So that's just something for you guys to sort of have a think about while we do the uh, He's given us homework. What's that about? So The Gods Themselves tells the story of uh, basically a project enacted by creatures living in a parallel universe to our own, a universe that has different uh, physical laws than ours does. And their plan to exchange matter with Earth in order to effectively exploit our universe for their betterment. Yeah, they're, 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 they're dying, so they need our yeah, energy. Yeah, they're, 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 they're dying out and they need our energy. Um, and really, they're kind of willing to do whatever it takes to get that. Well, not all of them. No. <laughs> but, you know, the exchanges that we get, you know, some of their, their cosmic radiation in return. So. Well, we basically get a, a, a limitless energy source. Mm. That can power us until the end of time. Pretty sweet. Or can it? Oh! Um, That's a twist. The book is separated into three sections. Section one is um, opens up on Earth, tells us the story of um, this energy exchange, and focuses on Lamont, who is a scientist that is actually questioning the nature of the energy exchange and how safe it is. And um, But he's dealing with... A very politicised 
scientific community, all built around uh, Frederick Hallam, who is technically the the man that first discovered the exchange happening, and and he is praised as you know the the father of modern science and how wonderful he is because he he created this uh, this pump that enables us to pump energy through and create this limitless energy source. But um, you also find out that his reputation is. Really, not all, not not built on the truth because he actually didn't do much. The aliens pretty much. He's the, the, he's other the Stephen Bradbury of the scientific world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically, Helm didn't really discover anything. He just kind of he was just the right guy at the right time, and um, even the pump wasn't really invented by him. It was actually the uh, the other reality sending through all of this, this for us to sort of just pick up on. Um, yeah, so... That's um, what all science is, Dave. Didn't you know? It's, we we, got, we so. got all of our scientific achievements from the body of Megatron. <laughs> That's fair enough. If you believe Michael Bay. Only from Megatron. Yeah. Surely, when the aliens crash-landed, you know, millions of years 51. ago... Area you 51. Know, and killed, you know, all the dinosaurs... I'm just their... going with the Transformer universe, which is the one true universe. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am wrong. So and gladly in... so. So, getting back to the <laughs> topic at hand. No, so, Lamont um, enlists the aides of um, Bronkowski, who is a linguist. They're, they Basically, they're receiving these messages from the parallel dimension, but they can't interpret those messages. Um, and what you find in the end of the first section is that Bronkowski actually um, does decipher the messages, and he finds out that their messages are basically telling us to stop running these pumps. Yeah. We, th- we then jump. Uh, from that into section two, which to me is the absolute highlight of this book. It's the best. Yeah, it's the sec- best section part. two is fantastic. That's where we actually see the story from the perspective of the uh, parallel dimension beings. And in this section, you just get just first class world building. Mm-hmm. Like this is like textbook how to create an alien culture, how to make that culture completely different from our own, while still maintaining. Very, I feel very human, emotional um, core to the story so that you're really invested in it even though the actual culture, the nature of the culture and everything about it is completely different to our own. Yeah. Very, it's, still, it's, it's alien yet still familiar. Yeah, absolutely. Very nicely put. Even the writing style changes. You sort of forget mm. you're reading Asimov. At, yeah. At it becomes... It's, it's, it's a more, so immersed in the story. Yeah, so the, basically Section 2 explores this this culture and... It shows you why the the aliens are doing this, what why they're sending this through, why they want the energy exchange to occur. As uh, Dave said earlier, they're a dying race, and we find out what that that's all about. And I won't go into too much detail about that because Good. it is mm. just fascinating. Mm. Like mm. it really is, and um, I was just enthralled in in section two. Section yes. two, even even as a standalone, separate from mm. sections one and three, section two is just brilliant. And yeah, to be fair, I kind of got a bit of annoyed at the end. Because I was actually that invested into what was going on with the soft <laughs> ones and the hard ones, with, with all the revelations and things like that, and then you know section two ends, you know, quite right in terms of the story. But they go, now I've got to go back to the humans. Yeah, mm. I was the same. Yeah, I wanted to go I'm back. So, to I'm the so humans. much more interested. What these, guys, these guys are great. How are the humans? Yeah. <laughs> Let them die. Having said that, section three to me also has some brilliant world building. Mm. In it does. It, it's basically section three takes place on the moon. It's quite and reminiscent of Caves of Steel. Yeah, yeah, very much so. What amazes me about uh, Section 3, it's set on the moon, and basically the moon has been colonised, and so you actually have um, several generations of actual moon moonies, moonites. Um, I call them loonies. 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 Yeah, the derogatory term for them is loonies. Um, and then earthies is the derogatory term He does term avoid for calling them lunatics, which is... Cool. He does. There's another book that uses those terms as well. Yeah. As a homage, I can't remember that. Yeah. Um, but, but what I loved about this is that the actual nature of, moon, uh, of culture on the moon is completely different to Earth. And so, once again, it's almost like an alien environment. One of our focus characters in Section 3 is Denison. He's a self-trained physicist. Basically, he, he was, he was a, a rival of Helm's back mm. in the day. And when, when Helm basically rose to power he got through burned. the energy exchange. <laughs> basically, Denison, Denison just got slammed. Like, that that was it. His career in science was over, and he actually spends... We find out he spends several decades as a um, uh, manager and then vice president of a uh, male cosmetics company. But then he, he trains himself in physics, 
Um, I believe he was a radio radio chemist, is chemist to begin with. Himself. Trains himself in physics over concerns about the energy exchanges and everything. And he goes to the moon to sort of, I guess, follow up on this because there's really no options for him on Earth mm. because of Helm's power. One of the things I really loved about this is that even though these people are descendants from people from Earth, because of the, na- the low-gravity nature and um, you know, the lack of, of, I guess, agricultural land and things like that, the moon culture has developed very differently. Mm. So section three then is dealing with, you know, the, there are, there are moon scientists They're They're working on theories. Denison has his theory and it's kind of being, uh, supported a bit. And so then it, 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 the story then sort of ventures into then the follow up on the exchange of energy and you know, whether we can find a way to do that exchange of energy properly, whether it really is dangerous or not and, and so on. So that is the basic plot. Interestingly enough, this is actually Asimov's favourite of novels of his, of his own writing. Mm. It is very, very different, I think, in its style to what we've read in the past. The standards are still there. This is still an Asimov novel. Mm. It's still written in that beautifully sparse language that, that Asimov have with no wasted sentences and everything. But the, the sensibilities, I think, are moving a little bit which, which I think comes from, you know, age and maturity. Mm. Quite interesting that you talk about, you know, this being a bit different. I think it's actually... That's what I thought. I thought, okay, he's actually trying to point out his own sort of style in the first bit. Mm. Um, it being a little bit more action-oriented. It's it sort of having a, a quite clearer, um, fast-paced narrative focus. And also also hard science focus and as I, well. And a hard science focus. And I thought, okay, this, this feels more like, you know... Mm. It's cool. I quite like the opening. But more like a, a typical Golden Age type, you know, more on action trying to get from point A to point B. Yeah. And then in the second part, I think there's a deliberate shift and he goes, well, that's not what this is about. And he actually, yeah. that's when he really does actually say, no, I'm actually doing something a bit different now. Because I was just going to jump in there because he's actually quoted as saying that this novel was written in response to uh, hey, his critics who said that he never had, he, you know, he doesn't have enough aliens or enough sex in his novels to yeah. sort of make them more sellable. Mm. And so in this novel, he's got aliens and sex and alien sex. Yes. Um, <laughs> see, just just on that a little bit, um, he, act, um, in, he actually wrote the introduction to Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions, mm. which is um, the sort of the premier new wave um, short fiction anthology, in which you know he says that um, Ellison invited him to contribute a short story to the anthology, and he actually didn't... He actually didn't because he didn't feel that his writing style actually reflected... Whilst he respected and liked quite a lot of the authors, you know, his own his own um, abilities didn't actually reflect what the new wave was about. Mm. And I think this, The Gods Themselves, actually points out, well, no, he actually did quite understand... He fully yeah. understood what they were about because part two is very much a new wave. Hmm. Um, very much a new wave story. You could have taken it out of itself, put it into Dangerous Visions... And it still would have worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's. Um, I think that's part of the strength. You know, he actually, you know, starts off trying to do it in one particular way, then changes that completely in the second bit, um, while still maintaining, you know, a sense of a sense of intrigue, a sense of interest, particularly in part two. I think part two is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and from right from the start through to the end, was completely enthralled in the alien culture. Really liked Jua and Odin, and was very intrigued by the mystery of who Estwald was. I was intrigued in the in the sense that I just thought this, that particular part was was brilliant, mm. um, but in turn, I, I wasn't really intrigued in terms of sort of the mystery. Like I had had it pre- pe- pegged pretty early on, mm. Mm. Um, and that's not. I'm not saying that as a criticism. Mm. I just. I mean, I actually knew nothing about the story to this book at all mm. before going in, and I'm really glad I didn't. And I'm not. We're not going to reveal that on this mm. in this forum. I mean, I wasn't disappointed that I sort of yeah, figured it out. It I was, was more along the lines of... I was the same, and, and I, was like, and I hey. got to that and thought, oh, I'm so glad I was right. Yeah, I was like, it was like I'm on, sort of a, I'm on the same level here, and, and, yeah. and, and that worked, and I was like, my God, this is awesome. For, for me, it wasn't so much figuring out the mystery, but then how he gets to that. and, what, yeah. and not, yeah. So it's not, not the answer to the mystery, but the nature of the mystery yeah. and how that then relates the to... to the mystery. Yeah, yeah and how I that agree. relates to the society and everything. Um, Just on a little side note there, is that... One of the nice things about Asimov, he's actually very good at having characters come up with plausible explanations, even if those explanations are wrong. Yeah. So, for instance, Jua comes across, it comes up with, you know, based on the, the stuff that she's found out, comes up with a theory for what's going on, which part of it is correct, but part of it is wrong as well, And but it sounds plausible. And yeah. then Odin comes around and goes, no, this is actually what's really going on. Yeah. Um, and it, 
and I think that's one because he does it also in um, uh, the Caves of Steel. Bailey comes up with a theory; it sounds very plausible, mm. but then oh yeah, I remember that. Right. Right. It falls um, flat on his totally face. wrong, <laughs> um, spectacularly. Wrong. <laughs> I think there's a. I think really, if there's a, a flaw in the novel or a place where it does fall down, I think it is in part three. I think it just gets a, bit, a little bit bogged down in telling us a Take little bit. Babble. Not techno babble, but there's just there's a lot far more techno babble in part one. But mm. no, no, that's what I mean. It's, it's more about, but there's a lot more about trying to tell me about the moon culture, and not mm. trying to show it quite so much. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one, of, one of Asimov's, um, one of the the critis- criticisms leveled at Asimov, is that he constantly tells what's going on or things through dialogue. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it works quite well. Sometimes he comes up with some very interesting dialogue. Um, mm. But here, I think because here I think he, in part three. He does that quite a lot, and it would be better to actually show it a little bit more. Yeah. Dialogue's actually quite interesting, and then that shows up in the contrast between the three sections, because in the first section, it's very much reminiscent of his earlier work, and the mm-hmm. characters all talk in that sort of 1940s era, talking mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, see here, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you move into the second section, and it's completely different. And the way that the characters talk to each other is completely different. And it's, mm. like I said before, it's just almost you f- almost forget you're reading Asimov. Mm. Then you sort of come back mm. into the moon section, and and it's, it's different again. It's it's mm. sort of more mature writing, mm. and it's also I mean you can tell it's a later work of his because you've got a a really well rounded, well thought out female character. And as mm. he says himself, he doesn't write many female characters in his early years because he doesn't know females very well. Mm. Yeah, Celine Lindstrom is actually a really quite a fascinating character. Solani, she doesn't like to be called Celine. Celine. Yeah, Celine, Celine, because they keep saying, you know, oh, have you? Do you sell anything? I'm calling her Celine. <laughs> yeah, that's all. But that's not what she likes, Dave. Well, respect her wishes. That's her problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that's a very David Goyer type comment. Yeah. The only, the only, the one criticism I would have, and far be it for me to criticise the master, but um, it, it's kind of surprised me about this when there, there's a section at the end. One of the moon uh, inhabitants talks about moving the moon away from the Earth, yeah. and I'm thinking, if you did that, the destruction on both the moon and the Earth would be mm. enormous. Mm. But and I'm, I kept waiting for someone to point this out to this character, no and nobody does. did. <laughs> the other the other kind of problem I got with part three is that given that um, part one and part two, you know, you get the you get the um, the central problem, and you get you get the continuation of why the problem exists. It just feels a little bit flat. It feels a little flat dramatically. Like, it feels a little anticlimactic. Right. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually... I don't think it built up to um, uh, a point. So they, the characters come up with a solution eventually. It just sort of happens. And it just yeah. sort of happens, and then it dissipates. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the yeah. uh, parallel. I was expecting yeah. to go back to yeah. the parallel world, we never, and we never did, and I thought that was kind of weird. And it didn't, yeah. need, it didn't need to be, you know, a first contact scenario, but, you know, and they, because we've talked, we've, we've already established that they can, in, in fact, exchange comments, uh, something along those lines. You yeah, know, I thought they the... would work together. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. see, I actually didn't see that at all. I didn't see them working together. I saw, no. it more, I saw it more along the lines of, you saw... I mean, you get the premise, you see what's happening in the parallel world, you see how, what the effect it's having on our world, and I thought it would then, once they had the, they solved it, hmm. they would then go back, sort of Return of the Jedi style, to the parallel world to see the ramifications of that as well. So yeah, they were yeah. saying, oh, hey, it's been solved. Mm-hmm. Celebration. And sort yeah. of, you know, go from there. So yeah. Sort of just sort of confirmation that, yes, it did work. Yeah, but, uh, but the, the point I think that we're getting to really is that a meeting point between the two cultures themselves. Yeah, so I, I did, I'm glad there was no meeting point. Mm-hmm. Actually, I didn't want a meeting point. Or, you know, at least a, a return to the parallel universe. Yeah. A return to the parallel universe would have been good, yeah. yeah. Oh, but given, I, given, given that a, a, a big portion of the novel is actually yeah, spent because... in the parallel universe, and the interesting bit is spent in the parallel universe. Just very briefly, I've got a little uh, sort of story here about the nature of where writers get their ideas from. Um, apparently, Asimov has described the development of this novel. Um, actually beginning with a conversation he had with Robert Silverberg in 1971, mm. where Robert Silverberg basically had to re- refer to this isotope, just an arbitrary thing that he was doing. And so he just creates plutonium-186. And Asimov is like, well, there's no such I- uh, isotope, and basically so- this isotope just couldn't exist in our reality. And yeah, Silverberg was like, yeah, so. You know, <laughs> but um, but Asimov basically sat down and actually started to work out how plutonium one eight six could exist, 
and he determined that it would have to exist in an alternate reality where the laws of physics were a bit different. And, and um, this is why we think he's the man. And that led to him basically then starting to develop the actual story around this uh, awesome. this isotope as well. So I thought I'd share that because that's kind of an interesting little tale. He, he tends to does it, do that. People would give yeah. him this scenario or something and just say, yeah. oh, this possibly can't happen. And then yeah. he would prove them wrong yeah, it's, story, almost like, it's almost like wrong. he sees these things as a challenge and yeah. then off he goes from there so yeah. alright well um, let's do some readings then shall we I really enjoyed the no- really enjoyed this novel um, just felt, feels it falls, falls a bit flat I think in the third section so I give this four looks yeah I'd pretty much my exact words I think actually I'm not a big fan of section one mm-hmm. I think section two is brilliant uh, and should have been just the whole thing, <laughs> and then uh, and then section three, yeah, it just it sort of ends in kind of a weird way. Uh, though it wasn't really kind. It, didn't, mm. it really didn't. It's kind of work for me. But yeah, I'll, I'll go with uh, three and a half looks. Oh, oh, exactly the same. Four four looks for that reason. Section two on its own would be five looks. But I also finished reading section three on a train, sort of when I was trying to get somewhere on time. So listening to you guys I think it probably did fall a little flat but I thought maybe it was just because I was rushing through the end of it Mm. but maybe not Uh, yeah look I'm strangely enough in complete agreement with everybody here Um, section two five Luke's one of the most amazing things I've ever read in any of the books we've read to date does fall a little flat in section three and section one is interesting but section two is what makes this novel brilliant yeah I will give it uh, four Luke's as well and um, just give Final word to Asimov, because he seems to agree with us as well, um, in that he described the novel, especially the second section, as the biggest and most effective over-my-head writing that I ever produced. So he kind of seems to agree with us as well. So there you have it, the gods themselves, Asimov, third year celebration, the man. On you, Zach. Um, cool, so... anyone ever called him Zach. Zach. So with that, I just, I just want to talk about uh, our dust jackets. Um, they, they seem to be uh, quite well received, which is good, because we enjoy doing them. Uh, we're gonna, and we're going to kind of mix it up a bit. When we first first started this, we did... Basically, all, all of our novels were chosen from uh, David's beloved uh, 100 Greatest Science Fiction List. 200, thank you. Oh, sorry, 200. I'm sorry. Uh, 200 Greatest Science Fiction, science fiction List. But, and, and I, but in, in an effort to sort of uh, mix it up a bit, uh, I, I decided to introduce the system where we would you know pick uh, sort of novels. And so in the effort to sort of get some non-science fiction stuff on there, because as much as I love science fiction, don't get me wrong, it's my work, I just wanted to get some more sort of stuff in there. And that's, and that's, that's worked quite well as well. But uh, what I thought, what we thought we we're going to do is because we love doing dust dust jackets so much, and because you guys seem to, uh, guys and girls seem to enjoy them as well, we're actually going to combine the two worlds. So starting from our next dust jacket episode, which will be four episodes from now, uh, we're actually going to have two dust jackets per episode. Um, and so to sort of lessen the amount of reading on the whole crew, we're going to do with what we did a couple of episodes back, where two of us review one and two of us review the other one. Uh, which I think worked quite well and uh, was quite enjoyable. So we'll mix it up so it's not always Richo and Luke doing one and Crystal and me doing one. We'll sort of mix it up a bit. What we'll do is at the end of every Dust Eggs episode, we'll announce the two the books, the two books that are going to be in the, in the upcoming one. And uh, if you've already read them and you can follow along, cool. If you haven't read and you want to read, follow along. Awesome. Either way, whichever works. So we're going to have Richo's always going to pick one and then we're going to have somebody else out of the other three picking one as well. And along those lines, I actually will be referring back to that sci-fi list's uh, online list. Crystal will put that in our uh, show notes. So we'll actually get back to telling, talking about where these books are on the list. And, um, and just along those lines, just to let everybody know, the gods themselves actually rank number 42 uh, on the list of 100 greatest science fiction novels of all time. 200, so. thank you. Sorry, two hundred. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we will. So we will. I will actually go back to referring to that, and in my introduction to my books, I will actually state where they were on the list, and we can sort of then discuss that cool. a little bit as well. Uh, so our next one, uh, our next uh, pick from the sci-fi list, Richard, will be the Space Merchants by Frederick Pohl and Sam Cornbluff. Cool. And the next next in line to pick is Luke, mm-hmm. and Luke will be picking uh, the Dying Earth, the or the. Jack, by Jack Vance, which is the first of the Dying Earth um, books. Awesome. So we'll be covering those two books. Okay, so that's, uh, that was The the Gods Themselves uh, by Isaac, Isaac Asimov, as covered by the NCP crew, the greatest crew in the world. Next up, we've got our reviews.
Okay, so first up with our reviews, we've got Crystal. Just to mix things up a bit. All right. Old school. Now, the reason I chose old school is because I heard Brian Brown on Richard Stubbs' show on the ABC the other day. For international listeners, ABC is our national broadcaster, and uh, and and uh, Richard Stubbs is a person who presents on this radio station. We also needed to point out that it's not old school, the Will Ferrell movie that you're mm. covering. No, I was getting to that. Ah, oh, cool. Because <laughs> otherwise, what would Brian Brown have anything to do uh, with it? <laughs> what Brian Brown care? Um, and and listening to Brian Brown, he um, he was quite enthused about this show. He uh, said it was directed by Gregor Jordan, and he brings some sort of unusual qualities to the to the show and. The premise sounded very familiar to me, even though he said it was unusual. He said it sounded like you've got Lenny, played by Brian, who is a, a criminal, um, who goes to prison because he gets caught uh, during a robbery where Ted, played by Sam Neill, gets shot. Ted's a policeman. Now, Ted goes off on a vendetta trying to figure out who shoots him while Lenny's in prison. Ten, ten or so years later, Lenny gets out of prison to find that Ted's retired. So they're both retired. He's a retired criminal, retired policeman, and of course they team up. And then hilarity ensues. And yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, it does. It does. It does not sound all that unusual to me. It sounds quite good. So, but anyway, Brian Brown made it sound quite good, and I thought I'd check it out. But, um, it was pretty much as I expected. It wasn't. I was I was a bit disappointed. I think Brian lied to me. <laughs> lied to my face. Um, Brian Brown lied to your face. Um, uh, maybe. I mean, if it, in his eyes, maybe it is quite... Maybe it's just to his taste, but it wasn't really to mine. It, it didn't seem to really stand out, be anything all that unusual to me. Sam Neill's accent was kind of a bit jarring because I'm used to him to being such a well-spoken sort of person and he was trying to put on a sort of a... I would not really say lower class accent, but more of a working class accent, and and he's like yeah, dropping his G's and things like that, but didn't quite work. It sort of like it didn't. It sounded, it sounded like they were acting. It, <laughs> it, it, I can envision them reading the scripts. It, it just it wasn't. It didn't really flow all that well. So um, I mean, this is all true just based on the first episode. I mean, the, the rest of the series might grow and progress and become something awesome. I don't know. But just based on the first episode, I'd, I'd give this show a, a two. Cool. So next up we've got Young Luke. Okay, I've started to get into uh, anime quite a bit recently. Just, you know, in an attempt to look at things outside of, let's face it, American, particularly American superhero comics, and just trying to expand further, a bit further afield. And, you know, being a, a lifelong animation fan as I am, I just gravitated towards uh, anime a little bit more in recent times. But trying to be careful and not, you know, gravitate towards the overtly fetishistic stuff. So, the one that I'm going to talk about today is one called Black Butler. Created initially as a manga by Toboso Yana for Shonen Jump, I believe it was, back in the early early millennium. The, the, the anime um, itself tells the story of two people. One is uh, Lord CL Phantom Hive, a 12-year-old who's in charge of um, a quite a large estate and is the head of what is the Phantom Toy Company. But who also doubles as the queen, as Queen Victoria's guard dog. She got, she gets him to go and investigate the stuff that Scotland Yard is having a lot of trouble with. And he's twelve. And, and he's twelve. <laughs> okay, automatically this is sounding kind of <laughs> yeah. cool in a wacky kind of way. Um, <laughs> however, as it, as is revealed, Phantom Hive himself has a bit of a backstory. His parent, his estate was burnt down to the ground two years previously. And his parent, his parents were murdered in front of his eyes, and he himself was kidnapped and victimized. And so, what he does in an attempt to get revenge on those who have killed his parents and who um, brutalized him, he makes a deal with a demon. If you stick by me and do what I uh, and be my servant and help me get revenge, you will have my soul. And so, the demon um, becomes his butler, Sebastian Michaelis, and Sebastian becomes. A completely erudite, quite knowledgeable, quite faithful, quite loyal butler um, in the service of his Lord Seal Phantom Hive, knowing full well at that, toward, at that at the end he is going to get his soul. This not just you know, refers to you know the way that he deals with staff on the estate and his ability to maintain um, and run the household, which he does exceedingly well. He is a hell of a butler after all. <laughs> 
That's, but he also um, protects Phantom Hive when they're actually in danger. And Phantom Hive calls on him to you know save his life or go out and kill, and he has to obey. Um, and so that's basically it in the nutshell. It's, it takes four episodes to become kind of interesting. It does start off a little bit hokey and a little silly, but it's not until he Phantom Hive gets called in to look at the Jack the Ripper slayings um, and work out who is behind Jack the Ripper that it starts to get a lot more interesting and you really see the expansion of the world. But it's also where Sebastian and Phantom Hive's relationship really comes to the fore. And, you know, in spite of the fact that it's a demon effectively preying on this boy to get his soul at the end, there's a, there's, there is a stronger bond to these two characters apart from that. It's quite fascinating to watch the length that Sebastian will go to to actually save his master throughout the series. It's the final between Gothic Horror and Steampunk. Um, you know, the unusual nature of um, the world does does sort of lend it more to steampunk, but it doesn't quite have the retro-futurism of steampunk that steampunk has. However, the strong point are the animation. The animation is fantastic, and Phantom Hive and Sebastian as characters, particularly Phantom Hive, for a 12-year-old boy, you know, he back-talks to everyone, basically gets his way, and is one of the most conniving schemers I've seen since um, Kerr Avon from Blake 7. Huh. Okay. Um, and that's saying something. And that's saying something. You know, <laughs> Phantom Life does some pretty nasty stuff. It has some silly episodes. There is a, a storyline revolving around a curry eating contest. But at the ho- on the whole, um, series one builds to a quite a quite a strong climax, and then series two completely reverts the ending. And when you think it's actually the story has stopped and Phantom Life give, does give your soul away, series two goes, nah, something else is going on here. And actually nice. builds it to a what, what is actually quite a, a remarkable ending, the end of series two. Probably not for everyone, and if you don't get to the Jack the Ripper storyline and don't enjoy it, then you're not going to like the series. But um, once I got past Jack the Ripper, I was thoroughly entertained. I give this four looks. We actually uh, interviewed a cosplayer dressed up as a Black Butler character for mm-hmm. NCP TV, mm-hmm. um, who she and she was dressed up as Growl. Um, who actually then had to research because actually I didn't because I didn't quite hear her say the name of the character and so I just heard the, I just heard the names Black Butler and so Royal Sutcliffe. I started yeah so, so I'm so I'm googling I'm googling Black Butler and I'm just I'm dreading what I'm going to find because you can imagine and then because uh, it's the internet and I found this growl character yeah. and it's, I was quite I was quite intrigued it's, it's what 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 sort of what facet does Growl have in the show um, Growl starts Growl is introduced in the Jack the Ripper storyline. Hmm. Um, and I'm not going to spoil because he gets revealed in a certain way and then it changes. But what he is, in fact, um, is he is a grim reaper, uh, and that you know, like the the demons have you know their own sort of bureaucracy. The reapers have are very very bureaucratized, and it's a bit like uh, say if you've seen things like Dead Like Me or Reapers, uh-huh. in which the grim reapers actually have you know a system in place where they are to go out and. Um, you know, collect. reap and ha- reap and harvest, collect and collect souls. Yeah. But he's a bit more out there and a bit more extreme, and he has fallen so, sort of on the edge of what the reapers reapers um, are all about. You know, they're more about you know just maintaining order and discipline and things like that. Whereas he goes, yeah, no, I'm going to sort of do what what I want. Grell also has a bit of a fascination with and um, uh, a romantic interest in um, Sebastian after their initial encounter, in which they get into a pretty bloody fight. Yeah. Whenever they encounter each other, Grell is doing whatever he can to get not only to get Sebastian to at least acknowledge him, but to get him to kind of fall in love with him as well. Um, Grell, should be pointed out, is a man, or is certainly a, a male character. In spite of, he seems you know, quite androgynous. There is some. Though. There is a lot of androgyny about him, but yeah. he's actually CL actually calls him gay in one of the um, the later episodes. Right. Um, Fascinating. So yeah, Grell's actually Grell's actually quite one of the one of yeah. the more fun supporting characters, I guess. Is it available from Batman, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Check it out. Like well. Something weird, just as you were talking then, something I've noticed is there are certain things where when they're mentioned when somebody's discussing a plot or an idea, mm. that my ears just like pick up and it's like, now I must watch this. Mm. And one of those things is Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Anytime Jack the Ripper is introduced into anything, I'm like, We've been right, for Jack years, the Ripper. Dave. I've been here for just, a very, very long time. And Jack, yeah, the Ripper, okay. Jack the Ripper always gets your attention. That's, that's I, I true. Just, I, do I, have, just, I, I do have about 12 books on the subject. Yeah, I, was about, I was about to say, for those of you who don't know Richo, um, one of his d- bookshelves is devoted entirely to theories and alternate theories on who the Ripper was. <laughs> and I did do the Jack the Ripper walk when I was in London. Which is awesome. <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> Cool. Okay, so 
Next up, we've got, we'll finish up with myself, and I will be reviewing Sex Criminals, Volume 1, One Weird Trick, uh, which is uh, the latest comic from Matt Fraction and Chip Darsky. Now, I actually heard about Sex Criminals uh, back before it became a trade uh, a while ago, and I just, just, just dismissed it as, you know, indie stuff, trying to be hip and happening and throw sex in the title and all that sort of stuff. And uh, as usual, I was wrong. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's so when I saw it on the shelf at uh, at All Star, and uh, I picked it up, I thought hey, I'll give it a go. It's got an interesting cover, sort of a pop art sort of cover, and I'll I'll give it a shot. And uh, I'm really really glad I did because it is hilarious. I mean, it, this really is just comedy gold. At least sections of it. I was reading it on the train as I as I often do. I read my stuff on the train. And uh, I was hoping for a reaction. I was hoping for someone to see the word sex criminals on my book and have some sort of reaction. And I, and I didn't. That, that, that <laughs> tells us a lot more about you, I think, than about the book. It does. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you didn't go on to say, can you see what I'm reading? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Would you funny. like to read I like my it. book I like as it. well? I like it with the people who, who sort of look, like, look over at what I'm watching on. Uh, you know, it's usually like Game of Thrones or something, and they... You know, so this disapproving look on their face, but uh, yeah, look, that that can backfire against you when can. somebody follows you around the city for forty-five <laughs> minutes, telling you you're evil because of a book you were reading on the train. <laughs> That's awesome, and that did happen to me. That's a story for another day. I'm going to hell, apparently, yeah, everybody. I'll um, see you there. Anyway, so the one section I am talking about is uh, all right. Well, I'll, I'll deal with basically the plot. So the the idea behind them, the reason they're sex criminals, is because uh, Susie and John uh, have the ability to. Uh, stop time when they orgasm. Now it sounds ridiculous, and it is. It's ridiculous. But basically, it starts. It starts with Susie, Susie, who's, who's our sort of our narrator, and she discovers this ability when she's young, uh, when she you know orgasms for the first time, and she can't find any information about it. And, and so basically, nobody will talk to her. Her, her father's dead. Her mother's uh, an alcoholic, and basically they don't communicate. And, and so there's nothing that she can find in the library. And she's too embarrassed to ask people and stuff like that. She eventually just, out of just pure desperation, she asks the, uh, the to, to what she lovingly refers to as as the dirty girls, who are the sort of the the, the more knowledgeable sort of girls that go to her school. <laughs> and so she pl- plucks up the courage to go ask to ask these girls, and it's a total complete disaster. They just dismiss her as, as the child that she is. But then one of them sort of picks, sort of gets a bit interested, a bit more interested, and says, "Look." I'm going to do for you what I wish somebody had done for me when I was your age. I'm going to tell you all about sex. And the way she, that she does it is just purely reminiscent of myself. And uh, back in the day when I when I discovered uh, a certain website, which I'm not going to name, <laughs> which taught me a lot. <laughs> taught me a lot about the world. And uh, I then, you know sort of relayed that information to the to my to the horror of my of my friends Rich In, including, including me yep and, uh, <laughs> hang on weren't you like you know 18 at the time when, when you two first met yeah it's, it's not no 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 this, this happened about probably seven or eight years ago yeah and uh, yeah I already knew I already knew a lot up until that point I, I like to think I was quite world world uh, knowledgeable I suppose he, he um, knew the he knew the normal stuff. Yeah, but uh, this this website sort of opened my eyes to a whole new world and made me the person that I am today. So yeah, so this so this scene is, is very reminiscent, of, and this is this is at the point where I just where people actually were looking at me on the train because I was just laughing so hard. And basically, so basically they go into the girls' toilets and uh, and they share a cigarette, and then and and one of the and the the dirty girl starts drawing all these sex positions on the wall. <laughs> These sort of like sort of semi stick figures, and uh, they're not they're not real sex positions. I mean, they're they're based they're they're, ba- they're basically a parody of the stuff that I learnt from this website many many years ago. And oh my god, they are awesome! I'm just going to read a couple to a couple of here because they're hilarious. Uh, you got uh, blooping, and I'm sure you can figure that out. Uh, swaffling the reverse reverse cowgirl, shrimping, the Dutch microwave. And then basically just goes on from there. I don't, I don't want to read any more because basically you can sort of get the idea of where that goes, and, uh, and and also and also get the idea of the sort of things that this website was teaching young David. Okay, um, I just want to point one thing out. You know, kids, close your ears. <laughs> um, anyway, it's, it, 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 why why I find that scene so hilarious is more just because of Susie's reactions to it. So she's she at, at one point she's kind of like. You know, that actually kind of makes sense, that one. But then by the end of it, of course, she's horrified, as any normal human being would be, and, uh, you know, runs out. 
Much, um, much like I was when they first told me some of these things. <laughs> anyway, so that's my favourite scene. But uh, but she eventually she meets John and uh, discovers that she's not alone in this ability where she, where time stops when she got them. It happens for him as well. She calls it the quiet. Uh, he calls it. I don't think I should call it, say what, what he calls it. But anyway, so when he when he discovered this ability, he did what I would like to think I would have done and uh, uses it to sort of travel around the world because because basically time stops but he can still move and so he goes down to the local porn store and just starts stealing stuff <laughs> from the from the porn shop so he can then go back and use it at home and then he, he takes it back but you know he's still he's, he's, he's using those abilities um, so when they so they, they discover that and they, they click they, they instantly click and they discover they both have this ability and, and uh, John comes up with the idea that let's face it 9 out of 10 people would have the same idea Let's rob a bank. You know, it's, it's why wouldn't you do that? And so uh, that's the plan they have. They decide they're going to, uh, in order to save the place where Susie works, and sort of get some sort of money for themselves. Nothing major. They're not going to ruin people's lives, but they just they decide to stop time, uh, steal you know a bit of money from from random banks, and then uh, and you know use it for good deeds. You know, Robin Hood sort of style. Um, and of course, that all goes wrong when they discover that there's a branch of cops called the Sex Cops. Uh, who are basically who aren't actually cops at all, but they're just basically people who have the same ability. And uh, this is gold. The artwork, the artwork from Chip Dusk. I've never seen his artwork before uh, until this point, and um, it, it's it's awesome stuff. It's really really good. It's my type of comic book artwork. I don't go for that sort of that fancy type thing that seems quite prevalent at the moment. Um, I don't really can't really just explain it better than that. But I just I sort of like I like my comic books to look like comic books. You know what I mean? You, you like a more sort of simple style. Yeah, more. like a simple comic-y sort of style. I, I, I've heard it described too. more as, um, you know, more more of sort of the cartoonist style where yeah. things don't have to look ultra-realistic. That's right. They just have to be good, clean, tell a good story. Exactly right. And uh, and this really, 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 really works. And uh, and you can tell they're really, really having a lot of fun uh, with this series. And uh, I'll keep up with it because it's just awesome. Um, my other my other favorite bit is that it, it, it often it breaks the the fourth wall quite often. And uh, one bit is they're in the a pool hall and Susie breaks out into Fat Bottom Girls because um, it comes out on the radio and she starts singing it and it breaks into like a musical number like the people around the place <laughs> start you know, start doing sort of musical type stuff and dancing and stuff. But because they couldn't get the rights to the words to the song, it's basically just got little post-it note bits of Matt Fraction talking to us, the audience, but explaining why. They actually haven't got they haven't got the loops just the songs just been talking, <laughs> which is pretty pretty cool. And the absolutely best is it's got a series of alternate covers, which is the norm these days. And one of the alternate covers, I'm just going to pass this around. It's from the fourth printing of, of issue one. Is Matt and Chip looking like they're from a family photo, proudly holding issue one. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely brilliant stuff. It's, it's just gold. So you can, you can tell they're just having just a real really good time. So uh, I implore you to check it out. It's published by Image, so uh, uh, track it down at your, at your local comic book store and, uh, and give it a go. It's funny, funny stuff. So that's it for our reviews. Coming up next, App Happy. Uh, we've got a new segment called App Happy where we discuss, you know, an app that, you know, I've been made aware of in, in the past week or, you know, that I, that I use or I think is cool and sort of needs some, needs some love. Um, as uh, fans of the Aster, you know, where I, I thought I saved this app for the episode that uh, Richard was on because he's, he's beloved Aster, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the Aster Theatre have their own app. And uh, the one of the reasons I wanted to mention it was because uh, not only does it tell you what movies are coming out at the Aster, so it's got their showing times and stuff like that, but it's got uh, their staff reviews. Their st- the staff actually review the movies and stuff. Yeah. It links to IMDb. It does all those sort of stuff that you would expect from that sort of app. Um, it also has uh, a link, uh, if you click on a poster of a movie, it goes to IMDb and uh, shows you the IMDb page. And you can buy tickets, of course. You can buy tickets through the app for the movie. But one of the things I wanted to highlight is this absolutely brilliant idea where it links to your phone's calendar. So that if you go to buy tickets for a film that's on where you've already marked in your calendar that you're doing something else, it'll alert you to that. Nice. Which is brilliant. Yeah, that's good stuff. Jeez, uh, the Hoyts app doesn't do that, so uh, so that's 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 really really cool. So uh, so yeah, so the Aster Theatre app from Pinion Systems. It's on the store. It is free. Check it out. I think it's a must-have for all fans of the Aster. Coming up next, interview with Mr. Peter Joyson. 
Welcome, Peter Joyce, and how are you today? I'm good, thank you. So, how long have you been writing? Uh, I've been writing most of my life, lots of short little stories and things, but haven't really settled down to writing a book until the last couple of years. <laughs> so, as you can hear, listeners, I'm here with author Peter Joyce, and, and as you can tell, it's my first interview, so he's interviewing himself. <laughs> Welcome, Peter Joyson, to Nerd Culture Podcast. Thank you very much. Now, we'll do the, the general the plug thing. The book is called Elring Chronicles of the Vordeen by Peter Joyson. You can get copies of this on Amazon in e-format and in print format now. Yes, just Amazon. Tell us a bit about the book, Peter. Well, it's one... I, I think most authors these days put a little bit of everything into their books and when asked to categorise their book won't really know what to say. That's me at the moment. I've got no idea. Uh, it's on Amazon. It comes under fantasy, paranormal, and or urban fantasy. So it's set in the modern day in England. It's got a normal guy in it who's a computer programmer, and he falls into the world of the strange um, and mystical world of the sorceress sisters who aren't witches, but are kind of what you'd expect witches to be like if um, they lived in our modern sort of world. So they're not all warty and wearing black hats? And... No, they're five sexy sisters. <laughs> but I never say that in the book. <laughs> what made you knuckle down and get this book done? Lots of people start books, uh, start story ideas and start tapping away, but very few people even finish it, let alone get a published hard copy sitting in your hand. What was your impetus for getting that done? Death. <laughs> death. Glorious I'm, death. I'm a lot closer to dying than I was when I was younger. When you're in your 30s and 40s and you think, oh, I should have done something when I was 20, but even in, you know, then maybe you should have and you didn't because it was too hard. When you're in your late 40s and you go, I should have done something when I was in my 30s or early 40s, you should have, but you're just too lazy and didn't get around to it. Some people are made for finishing things. Other people just think about it or talk about it and never really get around to it. But I decided that if I was going to write a bucket list, writing a book would be on the top of a bucket list. But I'm not a big bucket list person because I'm too lazy to write a, a bucket list list. But I did knuckle down, as you put it, and finish um, this book after an aborted temp attempt at writing another one, a first book, but, uh, where I got out a lot of my uh, fantasy frustrations and wrote a big, long, rambling book about Tolkien probably could have written uh, if he was drunk and uneducated. <laughs> but you've got, I read somewhere that you've got to get, I think it's... 10,000 uh, hours. million words of crap written before you start writing any good stuff. Yes, yeah, 10,000 hours is another way of putting it. Yes, you can so write, sit down and, for a few years and, and just write stuff. And now I have been. I've written a lot of little short stories and, uh, and everything, and it, it all adds up in the end. And so you're able to you find the writing process, it gets easier and easier. And I just spent a couple of, day, a couple of hours every day around work and family life and... Uh, and just kept going. Plus, having people around you to support you. Uh, my daughter was um, uh, a good springboard for me. Whenever I'd have an idea, I'd run it past her, and she'd give it thumbs up or thumbs down. She listened to all my drafts, and I changed things. If she frowned, I'd go right. I'm going to cut that bit out, or maybe change it, or whatever. So uh, she was a big help. And um, my nieces were, um, you know, beta readers. So and they were a big help as well. And so, just having people around you to support you while you're writing, um, I think that was a big change for me. Rather than doing it all by myself. And so you've obviously been writing a while to get technique down. Um, did you do any sort of exercises and things to work on dialogue and how people actually speak in the real world compared to how stuff is written down? Yeah, uh, I think that to be any sort of writer, you've got to listen to the way, listen to people your whole life, basically. Listen to people talking, imagine um, what, they, what they're feeling. 
putting yourself in their shoes. Uh, basically, I, I, whenever I'm at a shopping centre or walking down the street and I see somebody or anyone, I'll be thinking, where have they come from? What are they doing? Where are they going? So dialogue comes from that. It's just listening to people. And uh, I actually find dialogue very easy to write. Uh, description's a bit harder for, for me, but uh, I find I can get around that if I concentrate and once again put myself in the shoes of the reader this time that's the big point of uh, with description is like what does what would the reader need to know to be placed in this uh, scene or this be put in the world to visualize it in your head that's right yeah. I've, I did a exercise of dialogue a while back where you're supposed to write you, you just overhear people and write down what they say and I found that you write if you write down verbatim exactly what they say it doesn't read back all that well sometimes. So I was impressed with the dialogue. I think I thought it flowed fairly well. Oh, good, good. Um, and the description's good too. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very visual book, but yeah, the world building is uh, exceptional, I thought. Uh, you placed it in the in the world and, and almost can see everything that's going on. Oh, great. Uh, thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about the process of um, actually publishing the book. I think that there's a big, there's been a big change in the last few years with um, being able to get your book published. Up till just a few years ago, you had to go through a publisher. You had to send off your manuscript, usually print it out into a, a ream of uh, pages, and you'd send it off to two or three publishers in Australia and maybe one or two overseas, and you'd wait for them to get back to you. Sometimes they, they would take months, and if they did get back to you, it was um, usually with a little slip saying thanks but no thanks we're not interested and what do you do then you, you you maybe work on it a bit more or you start another novel and you put that one in a drawer that's what people have been doing for a hundred years that's the way things have worked and these publishers if they did say yes they would maybe change change it they would run it through their editors they would um, make their own cover they would decide how, the, how they were going to market it or if they would market it at all, how many copies might be made, and, how, and, that, and that whole process might take a year or two or three years. In the meantime, you've just got to sit down and hope that it happens and, and keep writing. But now uh, with e-books and Amazon and iBooks with Apple and so on, you can write anything, and a lot of people do, and, <laughs> and put it up uh, as soon as you finished writing. You know, you, you could... Anyone can write anything and put it up on Amazon for sale. And if it's badly written, then it probably won't sell any copies. If it's uh, if it's okay, you know, and written to a certain genre, uh, there's a lot of people out there that are, are just don't mind spending a few dollars on, on on some books that are interesting and fun and just like watching a TV show. And it's that whole ebook process has sort of. Um, democratized the process of writing a book where you can write something put it up and it, it um the next day it can be selling and you can have as much control over the creative process as you want yes and uh which for a lot of bad ebooks up there things like the covers are terrible and the editing is bad and and so on you because you've got all, all that control then it's up to you to make it the best that you can yep There'll be terrible e-books out there, I'm sure, but uh, I admire anyone who has actually finished it. Finishing it is just an accomplishment in itself. And if you, you're brave enough to put your e-book up there and for people to... Because the internet's a harsh place. Brave enough to put your e-book up there for people to uh, have a look at and, and enjoy, then applause to you. But having said that... This is by no means a terrible book. Oh, <laughs> it's, yes. it's a fantastic book, and, and we will, we highly endorse it here at Nerd Culture Podcast, and we will put a link to it in the show notes so you can go and check it out for yourself. So you've got the you've got the ebook up there up and running as well, but you've also got hard copies. Is that an Amazon process as well? Uh, yes, a couple of years ago, Amazon brought a company called Create Space. Sort of the same process as putting an ebook up on Amazon filling out a few forms and putting up your files, you can go through CreateSpace and you have to have a formatted book ready to go. basically means uh, a PDF where um, each page will look like a printed page um, with the right margins and the headers to be the right size and everything. And your cover's got to be a good quality cover and you've got to do a back cover with the blurb. And uh, CreateSpace will either 
charge you a thousand dollars for everything and do it um they'll help you or you can do it all yourself basically for free and um which is what i did because i did the cover and um all the formatting myself well in your real life day job you're a graphic artist so that your experience would help out with that yes that was um fun doing the cover will we be seeing a sequel to Elring? a sequel uh Yes, yeah, so the subtitle of Alring is Chronicles of the Vordine, and in my book, the Vordine are groups of five uh, sorcerous sisters who look after the world. And I imagine that the Vordine, the history of the Vordine, goes back in time. So I thought of doing maybe a sequel directly to Alring, where the main characters Turner and Ember have to fight a new foe, uh, but also maybe a new book with a different uh, Vordine group in it set back in uh, medieval times or around the time of the uh, Black Death. So I could even, if I wanted to, jump forward in time and have a time-travelling group of uh, sorcerer sisters. Well, we love time travel. Yeah. So, uh, yep, I've, I, I left that there so to open the door and uh, we'll see where that leads. Good stuff. Thank you very much for the uh, interview, Pete. Um, it's uh, it's been a fascinating chat, and I hope you do really well with the book. It's a it's a fan- fantastic read, and highly recommend it to anyone out there. Personally, I give it five lukes. Oh, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you very much for, to Peter for uh, the interview. It was very cool. Check out the book. It's on Amazon. I have a link in the show notes. And uh, thanks thanks also to uh, Crystal for a very first interview. Cool, coming up next, coming soon. So in Australian cinemas, June 12th, we get Blended, the latest effort from uh, Adam Sandler and uh, Drew Barrymore. And man, it doesn't look very good. I'll be giving that one a miss. (laughs) Uh, What if the Brady Bunch, you know, were mm. even more boring than they were and went to Africa? Yeah, I I don't know. I like the Brady Bunch Bunch movie, actually, strangely enough. There's a Brady in the yard. (laughs) Having seen the trailer the other week, I've got to say, I pretty much got the entire movie, so yeah, no need yeah. to go yeah, to the Yeah, it was afraid of Days of Future Past, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I remember that now. Strangely that's... enough, we didn't get, like, Sin City or Gal- is it the Galaxy or anything. We got this trailer instead. Yeah, Sin City I didn't think much, but it was odd that for a Marvel movie we didn't get Guardians of yeah, the Galaxy. How odd was it? Yeah, we got bloody blended. Anyway, uh, we also uh, get The Face of Love, which I have no, no <laughs> idea about. Just now suddenly just blanked out. I have no idea. Uh, these final hours uh, and the rover. I should probably do a bit more research on these things. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually when I when I write it's... these notes, I do read about every single one of these films, <laughs> so I can say something. And then strangely enough, I just forget all about them because I just have no interest in them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, that was pretty poor. This is some poor radio, folks. This is how to, how not to do it. <laughs> but anyway, there you go. Cool. So that's it for episode ninety-five. That's it from me and the crew, Richo. Hooray! 95! I got nothing else to say. Sorry that wasn't very funny. I'll try to do better next time, guys. Luke? Yeah, you better. That was, you know, well below standard. And your standards are pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> hey! Yeah, this aggression will not stand, man. Hey, Crystal! There's a line in the sand! <laughs> cross this line, you shall not cross! No farther! <laughs> the dude in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's what we do! Bye. 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 You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can run on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on Nerd Culture Podcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website. www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show, use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net, or search for NCPTV on YouTube, because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flames. More info at www.filmflames.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. 
Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. Can I have the wiki page for this book? Wickedy whack. Wiki wiki. Wiki wiki. It's quick. Quick quick. Wiki wiki. <laughs> what the hell are you on, man? Did you just take drugs between episodes or something? Gotta take me some speed to get through this episode. Alright, here I go. Wiki wiki wiki. <laughs> that shit's kicking in right now. <laughs>